0: Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchy, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terriot. For 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. When the young Cajuns went overseas, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of a Cajun identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long-lost pride in their heritage. When the military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchy to bridge the language gap. Norris Morvan, a World War II veteran from Thibodeau, Louisiana, was one of our honorees at the recently held Cajun-Acadian World War II commemoration at the National World War II Museum. He and I had a grand old time on stage talking about his World War II experience in front of a few hundred participants in the audience and a few thousand who joined us virtually. I had the opportunity to first meet and interview Norris at his home back in 2021. He was one of a dozen French-speaking World War II veterans whom I've had the chance to interview since resurrecting this long-running oral history project. It was the experience that I had at the Congress Mondial Acadienne in Moncton, New Brunswick in 2019 that influenced me to search for and interview the last of the Frenchies of World War II. That trip was the impetus for creating this podcast series. Generous grants from Codafil and from the Atchafalai National Heritage Area provided the support needed to find these veterans and to bring their stories to you. About half of those I've interviewed in the past few years have since passed away but their stories will live on. Norris Morvant was drafted in February of 1943. He was sent to Missouri to an Army Air Corps training base where he took up radio and radar training. 6 months later, he wound up in General Eisenhower's headquarters in London as a liaison man with the 89th Complementary Squadron. Of the 8th Air Corps. His primary mission was to drive across France in a Jeep to deliver orders and small equipment to commanders on the field. As you probably guessed, his Cajun French became a valuable asset on his many backroad adventures.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Norris Morvant and I'm here living in Tepero where I was born. I have I have a good memory from way back, even though I'm 97 years old, I can still speak French. Although we don't use it all that often, we we do talk once in a while, and uh, it's beneficial because we we want to keep up with our French heritage. Some of our family went to uh, Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. and from Nova Scotia. They they were were transferred back to uh, Louisiana here because they wouldn't. It didn't fit. They didn't fit right with the uh, people around the place. So naturally, they they moved on to Louisiana. Most of them were trappers and uh, carpenters and uh, whatever. So they fit in well in Louisiana here. My, my young life consisted of uh, living on plantation. Most of the time, we we didn't have, well of course, we didn't have electricity in the time. Uh, toilet outside, no bathroom. We had to do the best we could with a number three tub. <laughs> it, it 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 wasn't funny for sure, but anyway, that's the way we were. We were poor, but we didn't know. We we thought we we were just okay, you know. I, when I went to school, I didn't know a word of English. That that was hard. And at that time, the teachers wanted you to speak English. So if you spoke French, they would hit you. Or they, 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 they would make sure that you didn't speak French for sure. They wanted you to get away from that. Especially we we were not speaking the same French as what was in the world at that time. Mm -hmm. We were talking ancient French. Uh, The French people used to call it a patois. And and a patois is made up of all kinds of syllables and names and uh, uh, words that uh, meant something to them, but it wasn't ideal for the world because the world couldn't understand what that meant. (laughs) That's why. The fact that, that, that I, I could speak French helped me a whole lot though mm-hmm. when I was in the service. But I ended up in the, in headqu- in the headquarters there, and uh, I got to be friends with the people in charge. Uh, he was the Sergeant Beck, and uh, he was very nice with me. Uh, giving me errands to do and all kinds of stuff around the headquarters. Uh, and I used to see all the generals. Coming in in the morning, you know, and Winston Churchill, General de Gaulle, all these generals that, that meant something for a big meeting with, Gen- with General Eisenhower. So one, well, one morning, I, I was going into uh, to, to the office where my sergeant was, and uh, General Eisenhower was going down, down the hall. So I, I backed up against the wall and I saluted. When I saluted, he stopped and turned around. And he said, "Soldier, you don't you don't salute an officer in the, in the, in the, in here." I said, "Thank you, sir." I was about to salute again, <laughs> but, but he turned around and then he went his way. But that's lo- "That's the only time I ever talked to him." When when I was in in, uh, in London yet, yeah, uh, I didn't I didn't go to France until around January J- July the fourth or the fifth I believe, uh, and, and they were still fighting in uh, Charbourg. Now Charbourg is a peninsula, jutting uh, out north of, of the middle of France, and uh, so they they were get, getting getting. All the Germans out, and that afternoon, I was called in to the officer telling me to get your stuff, you're going to France. So uh, I went to uh, the the airport, and they had a C-47, which is a transport plane, with the jeep in it, and another one in the back of that with a big generator in it. Now here I am a PFC, a private first class. I'm signing out a million dollar plane in the front and a million dollar plane in the back. Can you imagine the authority that I had with, with being from the general? So anyway, uh, we landed them on, on some mats because everything was blown up to pieces. And, they, and the engineers had to put mats from the plains to land on. Uh, from that point, uh, I asked, where was Grandville? Now, Grandville was to the west, which I'm glad it was, <laughs> because to the east was the fighting front. Now, so I asked, what highway are you going to take? Well, he said, you're going to have to take, I forget the name of it, d D4, I believe. Anyway, uh, he said half, half of that dry, high, highway is not passable. He said sometimes you may have to pass in a fee or whatever and show it off. I did. And then a, a small Jeep pulling that big generator in the back. I thought I was going to get stuck somewhere. Like, but no,
0: I made it. Morvov successfully delivered the generator and the equipment to General Eisenhower's new headquarters at Granville, about 60 miles down the coast of the Schauburg Peninsula. That next day, he took a walk on the beach and ran into some French civilians. It was his first encounter with French people from Normandy. I
1: them when, when when I was outside on the beach, and they were coming towards me. So uh, when they got close, they they tried. They said hello, like like this, like regular English, so to speak, and uh, they tried to talked to me in, in some broken English, and then I, I told him, I said, uh, Je parle Francais aussi. Uh, on, peut parler, on peut se parler en Francais. And then it, it continued with a conversation for a while. Uh, and then the, the, the girl told me that she was living down that way, uh, which is about a, a half a block or so. Um, from where we were and then the young boy he was with the underground. But he, he they were they were disbanding because the army had took over everything they you know and, and we went to we went to Paris we moved everything to Paris and uh, Saint Germain which is out, right outside of Paris, about three or four miles, uh, close to Versailles in Saint Germain. And, and then we made a headquarters there.
0: Morvant was apparently the only French-speaking soldier at headquarters. As such, he was given an appropriate nickname, Frenchy. It,
1: it started. It started one day when I, when, when I was in headquarters uh, that they they understood that I was French, mm-hmm. and I thought, so you you Frenchy, and it started. Everybody would call me Frenchy. I had to, I had some of the, uh, some of the, People I was in some of the soldiers I was with, they were from all over, you know, and and they were, kind of they were kind of uh, good with uh, being friend, uh, someone different, and, and I was the only one that was that was, there that was named Frenchy, so whenever they would call for somebody Frenchy, that was me. <laughs> it it was fun, it, it was all right. I, I when when I was in France though, uh, it, it was a different thing. I had to learn some of that French, and, and I got I got good at it. When I got to Paris, I they have some Parisian slang, and I, I learned it. And then, one day I met somebody, and, and I was talking with the slang and all. They said, "Well, how did you do to go to America, and and get to be in a, in the service and come back?" I said, "I never did that." <laughs> they thought they thought I had that this person had thought I was I was a French person. Yeah. But, but when you're getting good at it with the slang, you know, through the slang, and and that 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 made the difference. Mm-hmm. It was fun, <laughs> but the rest of it wasn't. But I. Uh, I, I did I did a lot of stuff for general Patton and uh, and I, I did a lot of driving all over the place for different things to say the least though when I went to France things changed a little bit because I was given so many things to do that half of the time they didn't know where I was and, and the reason for that is because most of it was missions where uh, I I went into places where other people couldn't go because I had, I had the knapsack with the general eyes and I was signature and everything on, on it. Like like for instance, I, I I was going to the front one day to uh, to complete a mission to uh, a certain outfit, and because uh, uh, communication was bad, so I was. I was told to go to this com- uh, this particular uh, company, and find them and, and give this colonel these orders. When I got close to the front, when I, I I got stopped by an MP, a military police, and he said, "Soldier, where are you going?" I said, "I'm going to such and such outfit." See, you can't go right now. I said, "Why?" He said, "Because I say so," and. Uh, I said, well, now this is important. I said, I have to go there. Yeah, you can't go now, he says. I said, I'm from headquarters, generalizing how was headquarters. Oh, he said, well, wait. He said, let me, let me call somebody. So he had one of them phones we know, with the long whip. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he went, rang it up. He talked to somebody and he came back and he said, Soldier, he said, you can go. But he says, I wouldn't want to go with you. And it was right in the middle of the 155 uh, guns, you know. And and when you walk, you don't walk, no. You, you're like this here. You're shaking because every, uh, the ground is shaking all over. They, they, tell, they show up, they shoot one of them, and then the other one shoots after, and then it keeps on going like that. And I finally found the place, though, And uh, I gave the Colonel the orders and and, uh, I saluted him. I said, Sir, is that all? He says, Yes, yes, soldier. He said, You can go return. So I I, 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 I saluted him and I I left. When I stopped at at the sergeant, he said, How was it? I said, I don't want to stay there. (laughs) I said, It's kind of rough. Yeah, he said, I know. But he says, you were lucky that you could go because other than that, I would have never let you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, when when the uh, last push was done to, uh, go to go into Germany across the Rhine, uh, they were running out of gasoline for, for tanks, especially. And General Patton got in touch with our headquarters saying he needed somebody to Get some uh, some guys from La mm-hmm. to there to the front, and I was one of them. Three days straight—that's all we did. I I would I would bring, I would bring a, a full one to the front, take an empty truck, go back again for three days straight. And then I, I, when we finished that that mission, I went back to headquarters, and. Um, my lieutenant told me he said, "Conner, I forget his name. Conner, so and so want to see you." And uh, so I went to where he was, and uh, so the, the sergeant in charge of the, the office told me he said, "Take his seat." He says, Connor's gonna come out in a minute." So he came out and he had something. I don't know what it was. He says, uh, "Soldier," he says, "Congratulations." He said, "You, you were awarded a bronze star from General Patton." He said, "Not many people get that."
0: So your, your French came in handy. Yeah, it sure did.
1: In fact, a lot of times, uh, I, I used to stop and ask, make sure I was on the right direction to go, because I, I used to go to Bordeaux a lot, a lot of, of times, mm. and uh, sometimes it was it was so far that it was five hundred miles from Granville, and and coming back sometime I'd have to stop on the side of the road and take a few hours, you know, Mm -hmm. sleep. That's why I said that they never knew where I was half of the time. By by the time I was having uh, to be uh, sent back home, um, I came into headquarters from Bordeaux and the sergeant asked me, he said, where you been? I said, well, I was sent to board the horses to get supplies. He says, you better get your butt to button. He says, you're going home. Most times, yeah, they knew that if they sent me somewhere, I could, I could communicate with someone to find out where I'm at or, or where to go and how. It, it was convenient. I really thank my parents for teaching me the French that we had.
0: Did but you find that your French had changed some from talking to all the different people? And,
1: and my dad and my mama didn't understand anymore.
0: <laughs> because, I, I, in other words,
1: I was just into that situation where I'm trying to translate back to the French that that I was taught, but I'm still I'm still talking that French over there. Mm-hmm. It, and my dad told me, "He I 'I don't know what you said.'" <laughs> and then I would have, to, I would have to back up, you know, and go. so it it was, it was nice to be back to, him. but it was, it was hard to be a, have a, uh, be uh, come back to civilian life. Mm-hmm.
0: This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. As always, we'd like to thank our supporters. The Acadian Museum in Erath, the Regional Military Museum in Houma, the Achafalaya National Heritage Area, and Codafil, the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana. The Frenchie Podcast music is provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. Audio editing and engineering done by Chris Segura of the Center for Louisiana Studies at UL in Lafayette.